whenever there's a liturgical abuse, a sacrilege, whatnot against our Lord in the Eucharist, people need to understand, it is equivalent to crucifying our Lord again. The beginning of that three and a half years, Antichrist will bring the public celebration of the Mass to an end. So there's this Eucharistic element to the Antichrist. Now, how is it all connected? If you haven't seen it already, you have to go back and watch part one of the interview on Freemasonry with my next guest, Joshua Charles, because you're going to get that first deep dive into it to help you to understand where this goes. And it was indeed a deep dive. We're right now into the very, very thick of it. So if you're just joining us now, go back to LifeSightNews.com, look up the interview with Joshua Charles and check it out there. Now, this part two, we are really in the weeds, and it gets super interesting. Okay, listen to this. This is going to blow your mind. Joshua Charles lays out the evidence that there is, in fact, evidence that you have a sort of super group of occultists, New Agers, all these different kind of nature, paganistic, whatever religions we see cropping up everywhere. He believes and points out that there's evidence that there's sort of one group, not even a group, one person that's been in charge of really all of them for a long, long time. And that one person is like, it's handed down like a bishopric almost from one person to the next to the next. And that the end of that cycle will be Antichrist. Well, that's fascinating all by itself. And then what are we dealing with? Where? Are we in this timeline toward where we're going, toward Antichrist? All that and more on this episode of The John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Hello, LifeSite friends. As you know, the times we are witnessing in the world, and specifically the church, are both perilous and shocking. We are seeing bishops against bishops, Catholic clergy defying the church's 2,000-year-old teaching with impunity, and good priests suffering calumny and marginalization, even a point of being canceled by their own bishops. That's why LifeSite News is proud to sponsor and support the upcoming second annual Coalition for Canceled Priests Conference at the Rosemont Hilton near Chicago's O'Hare Airport. I will be speaking there at this event, which takes place on June 23rd and 24th, and reflecting on the conference theme of A House United. As Catholics who uphold the Church's teaching on life, faith, family, and freedom, we cannot afford to be divided and silent while our courageous priests are unjustly persecuted and cancelled for faithfully serving Christ. So join me in standing with our canceled priests at this two-day event. To find out more about the conference and venue, visit www.canceledpriests.org slash second-anniversary. I hope to see you there. And now, back to the program. Did the Freemasons write that the Catholics or the Catholic Church was doing I mean, obviously, when the church preaches against Freemasonry, yeah, that, that's a thing. But what else was it doing? And that's why I was so glad to hear that last bit about how the pagan statues felt. People need to resurrect that understanding that it's, you know, people read stories of saints and they are taught in school now. Oh, that's just allegorical. That's nothing. Just like angels. That's, you know, <laughs> it's actually realities. But it's what 
you know, people now think of fables and whatever else. Nonsense. Real stuff. But what did the Masons say was going on? I think it ultimately comes down to the Catholic Church claimed to have divine authority to bind the human conscience. I think that's what it ultimately comes down to, which is why, you know, many of my closest friends and mentors are still Protestants. So none of this is directed at individual Protestants. But I think this is why Protestantism was such a disaster because, and the early, the early so-called reformers, I don't think they conceived of it this way because like many people who don't listen to the church, they don't realize the secondary tertiary effects of what they're doing, but they, they essentially established the autonomy of the human intellect. And so that's what Freemasonry and occultism is all about. You shall be as gods. I mean, so when you read, so one, one book I read was by J.D. Buck, Jedediah something Buck. He was a very high-ranking Freemason. He wrote a book called, well, I'm not going to mention the book because I don't think people should be, frankly, too curious about these things. But he participated in the 1893 Parliament of Religions, which Cardinal Gibbons also went to, who is a good man. He wrote The Faith of Our Fathers, played a, a role in my conversion. But Pope Leo XIII later you know, chided him for that. And the Parliament of Religions in 1893 was sort of this first flowering of ecumenicalism, I guess I, I would call it. And there were theosophists there and Christians and Buddhists and Hindus and sort of this whole, again, it all comes back to that, that are you going to be, are we united in one family through the first Adam or the second Adam? Well, the Parliament of Religions was saying we're all united in the first Adam, of course, not explicitly, but implicitly, that's what they were saying, that our, our original sin damaged nature inherited from Adam is sufficient for our brotherhood. And the church has said no. And the church claims to say no on the basis of divine authority. And so something that J.D. Buck and a number of these Freemasons write, they, they think that this is blatant tyranny. They think that the church's claim to teach authoritatively what the human intellect must believe is tyrannical. And so, I mean, I think the natural, well, unnatural, but you know what I mean? The natural progression of this is certainly in the trans movement. And by the way, I've had family members who have struggled with that. Thank God they're coming out of it. There's really some miraculous things going on with family members who are kind of in with all that and are now beginning catechesis. It's been amazing. So I'm not here to, to attack any person who's genuinely struggling. We need to love and support them. If I saw somebody who was genuinely confused about their gender, which I couldn't blame them these days. I, I have some teacher friends who tell me what's happening in schools and it's, it's mind boggling. But if I saw somebody bully them, I'd be the first to punch the bully in the nose, you know, rhetorically or physically if I needed to. So we need to stand with people who are genuinely confused and whatnot. But but as far as giving into, are we going to call them what they say? That No, of course not. But all of that goes back to the autonomy of the intellect. No one can instruct me, which, of course, is the whole reason I became Protestant or I became Catholic from Protestantism, because I realized that my autonomous intellect without an authority in the world established by God to say, thus saith the Lord, this is the faith. This isn't the faith. There is literally no way for me to reach certainty. I wanted to love Jesus Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Well, in Protestantism, I couldn't even get to what the commandment was because I would have good, educated man X, good, educated man Y, and, and, and even more, and they just could never agree. And who was I to say, well, this one's right. This, it's like I could never know. And so Protestantism began this whole project by, the way I like to phrase it is, denying that there's a living apostolic voice on the earth. 
So Protestantism made us all orphans, frankly. They don't realize it, but that's what they made us. And so, well, I mean, those, those who went along with it, of course. We know as Catholics, we're not orphans, right? There is an apostolic authority in the earth. But that's essentially Freemasonry's gripe with the Catholic Church, because no Protestant sect could say, and, they, and many of them don't even say to this day, uh, thus saith the Lord, you must assent to this. I mean, they'll, they'll say, you know, believe the gospel. or Okay, that's fine, as good as it is. But then once you get right past that out, outer layer, they're all disagreeing about all sorts of things. They can't even agree about baptism. They can't even agree about whether, you know, you can divorce, whether you can remarry, uh, whether if you deliberately choose to sin, you're forfeiting your salvation. I mean, there's just all sorts of things they can't even agree about. And they'll even admit, none of us can say, we don't have a magisterium to say, we bind and loose, this is true, this is false. And that's what masonry hates. It hates this claim, this pretentious, tyrannical claim, in their view, that the, that the Catholic Church has always had, always made, to bind the human intellect to believe certain truths. And they want to destroy that. Now that brings me to a very uncomfortable question for you. Even your theory, which I agree with, that the church is the catacomb. And if the catacomb will one day stop or be lessened to an extent that Freemasonry to its ultimate goal, which seems to be Antichrist, then as we've seen, particularly over, well, it, there's been an acceleration in the last decade, but it's been going on for half a century. The church letting go of its claims to hold the intellect to have to believe a certain thing. That's happening in spades. In fact, you almost see the church, and I'm not, okay, members of the church who are given laud, honor, and, and, and stuff from the hierarchy, embracing the opposite of the truth of the church. And we are in that situation exactly like the Protestants were, where you're now going, well, well, who is the authority? Because you know, do I follow this bishop or that one? Because they're diametrically opposed, and they're both very smart people. They've both been educated much more than me, and I'm a simple Catholic, and I don't even know what to do. And they're teaching truths that are the opposite. They're claiming that they're both extensions of what always was. They're both claiming that. We're in that situation right now. We have been in that situation for a decade in earnest and for 50 years to some extent, but it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Where are you on that with regard to the whole discussion on the catacomb? You just throw me all the softballs, John Henry. I appreciate it. I fully came into the church in July 2019 on a date that neither my priest, who was also a Protestant convert, FSSP guy, Neither my priest nor I realized it until like a week before, but it was July 13th, the Fatima day. It was, and it was a Saturday. I, I pray a daily rosary, wear it with me everywhere, and it's changed my life. So I, I suspect Our Lady's prayers were involved in some way. So I'm very devoted to Our Lady Fatima. I do think the third secret, we never got the full thing. But I can say that since I've been Catholic, I have never lost my peace. And I you know, ascribe it entirely to God's grace. But I think one of the reasons why is in my study of the patristic interpretations of 2 Thessalonians 2, Apocalypse, Daniel, and whatnot, and I'm still doing more, but I've done a lot the last three years, I'll point to a prophecy, so to speak, of St. Pope Gregory the Great in the Moralia of Job, an amazing work. It's, a, it's as long as the, as the Confessions and City of God of St. Augustine. 
a little bit longer than both combined. But he has a he has a prophecy in there. He has a lot of eschatology that he gets from Job. And St. Thomas Aquinas said St. Pope Gregory the Great's mystical treatment of Job was the single best that was out there. So he St. Thomas Aquinas is like, I'm not even going to the mystical. I think he did the moral. So St. Pope Gregory the Great said that the church prior to the appearance of Antichrist would be severely weakened. I don't have the reference right in front of me, but he said that the voice of doctrine would fall silent. He said the penitence, the penance would be weaker, that there'd be fewer miracles. He said all these sorts of things. There'd be all these sorts. Now, and it's very interesting why he said it would be that way. He said it was for basically two reasons. One, and, and this kind of goes into sec- Paul and 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul says that the reason this great delusion is sent, so the people accept the Antichrist, the delusion is meant for those who do not love the truth and that they will kind of ultimately fall into condemnation, and, but that those who are genuine and who will stay with our Lord are proven. And Paul elsewhere says that that's the purpose of heresy. As heresy comes into the church, it proves those who are genuine. Many fathers talk about this. And so St. Pope Gregory the Great says that the reason this is allowed is so that those who love, who don't love our Lord will be shown for who and what they are, and they'll all the more easily fall away. And two, those who do love our Lord will merit even more by the fact that they can rely less and less on what they see and more and more on what they know. So it's a very interesting and powerful reflection from a saint, a pope, a doctor of the church, and a church father. So I think those are about the four biggest check marks you can get in the Catholic church. And so I would highly recommend people look into that. There's actually thecatacon.org. There's a site out there, and it actually has a reference to this. So if you want to look that up, but uh, thecatacon.com. It's a really big topic, but the other thing I'd say is, but in studying Catholic history, you know, we've had, uh, look, I pray for Pope Francis every day. I accept him as such. Would I be surprised if things turned out differently in the future and the church clarified that? Not necessarily. I'll just put it that way. That's as far as I want to go on that. But I pray for him every day. But the fact is, is that we've had about 40 antipopes in history. The fact is, is we had an Avignon papacy where the pope wasn't even in Rome for 70 years. The fact is that, you know, we've had some of these antipopes who were reigning in Rome while the genuine pope was in exile in some Italian town a few hundred miles away. The fact is, is we had all of Christendom, Western Christendom, being divided between three claimants to the papal throne. And there was actually a, I'm forgetting who it was at the moment, but this Irish priest theologian, very highly, I think John Henry Newman praised him very highly. He made a comment in a book he wrote, I have the reference somewhere, But he basically said, you know, when you reflect on the Western schism and all these sorts of things, if you had asked Catholic theologians before the Western schism, could this have happened? Most of them would have said no. They would have said no, the promises to Peter and whatnot, no, this wouldn't have been possible. And so what what this Irish theologian was taking from this was, was we need to be careful to, with too much certainty, presume on what God will allow, okay? So for me, coming from Protestantism, I still see in the Catholic Church, there, there's three big things Protestants, I realized, reject. Most Protestants reject, but I was seeing in the earliest fathers. Apostolic succession, baptismal regeneration, and, uh, oh darn, what was the third one? I forget, but those two are big enough. 
they reject them. And you see them in Clement, you see them in Ignatius, you see them in Irenaeus, all the, so why are these disciples of the apostles believing things I was told by Protestants were medieval? No, no, no. So my point being that, oh yeah, the worship, the sacrifice of the Eucharist, that that is Christian worship. Okay. So those three things, apostolic succession, baptismal regeneration, sacrifice of the Eucharist. These are still crystal clear. The Ten Commandments being binding. I mean, when I was a Protestant, you'd hear guys like John Piper, who's a good guy in many ways, but you know, have a question. Are the Ten Commandments binding on Christians? He's like, no. I mean, Protestants aren't even clear about whether the, the Ten Commandments are binding. In the Catholic Church, that's never been a question. Of course, the Ten Commandments are binding. Okay. So are the structure of the church, the worship of the church, how we become Christians, the basics of the moral life, all these things remain, largely speaking, crystal clear and settled. And I really don't need the latest commentary from a pope or a bishop to know that. Now, how all of it will be resolved, I frankly don't know. I frankly don't know. I do think the typology of the passion of our Lord, the church does teach in the catechism that as our Lord went through a passion in his individual body, uh, the church will go through a passion in our Lord's mystical body. So again, this is a topic I've studied deeply. We probably can't go into it all right now. But but I do believe the typology of the passion is extremely powerful. One point here, and again, maybe this is why I have a lot of peace, because I, I think a lot of these things line up, and they line up so well that for the parts I can't explain, I just trust our Lord, and I want to be you know typologically with St. John and Our Lady at the cross and just suffer it well. But the catacomb, when it stops restraining, we know from the fathers, St. Robert Bellarmine talks about this, there's a unanimous consensus among the fathers that in the second three and a half years of Antichrist reign, there's a seven-year reign, first three and a half years seem to be pretty good, at least outwardly. The second three and a half years are when it gets awful. But that at the beginning of that three and a half years, Antichrist will bring the public celebration of the Mass to an end. Okay? So there's this Eucharistic element to the, to, to the Antichrist. Now, how is it all connected? I'm going to introduce something just really quick. So to kind of expand on St. Augustine's city of God, city of man, St. Augustine and many fathers also talk, there's an overlap. If you have a Venn diagram, there's an overlap between the two. And that overlap, that dark side of the church, so to speak, is the anti-church. They don't use that term, but that's a term in use a lot today. It is those who within the church who receive baptism, have the mark of baptism on their soul, are nominally Catholics perhaps, but they're working against Christ. Now, to be clear, all of us can potentially be part of this anti-church. When we choose to mortally sin, we become, we're not really fully incorporated into the body of Christ at that point. We need to come back and return. So, so lest any of us think it's always them, you know, like it can be us too. But this anti-church, I believe, is this mystery of iniquity. And so the constant pattern throughout history is that the world outside the church and the, and the anti-church within the church, they're part of what many of the fathers refer to, and even St. Thomas Aquinas, as the body of the devil. And so this mystery of iniquity is the what's in the church and what's outside the church, and they both team up and war against the church. This is the constant pattern in history. There's a whole lot of typology of it, even in the Old Testament with Israel. It's fascinating. So when you look at how did our Lord's passion begin, I was just reading a sermon from St. John Chrysostom about this. In St. John's gospel, John asks our Lord, you know, who is it? Who is the one who will betray you? And Jesus apparently quietly says, because the other apostles don't seem to be aware, says the one who I give this morsel to. Well, most of the fathers believe this was the Eucharist. And so he gives the Eucharist to Judas. And then scripture has something very disturbing, and but very interesting and makes total sense in light of Catholic theology. 
right when G, right when Judas receives it, Satan enters into him. Why? Well, we know from John 6, the very first time that St. John identifies Judas as the betrayer is in John 6, when our Lord is having the most explicit explication of, the real, of his real presence in the Eucharist. And it says that Judas didn't believe. Okay? So, bringing this all together, I believe, and I think many great saints have talked about this, that the, the, the sacrifice of the Mass— keeps a whole lot at bay. Our Lady of Fatima, you know, the first Saturday devotion, all the devotion, it's all, is it go to confession and go to mass, right? It holds something terrible at bay because it's the sacrifice of the new Adam to the father, right? And so when it, we get to the point where Antichrist will suspend the public celebration of the mass, I personally believe typologically it lines up very, very well with this Judas figure receiving it and Satan entering into him. And frankly, all the liturgical abuses we've seen over the last 60 years. It, whenever there's a liturgical abuse, a sacrilege, whatnot against our Lord in the Eucharist, people need to understand, it is equivalent to crucifying our Lord again. St. Paul says this. And so that means that with all those abuses, our Lord is being crucified in his own house, in his own temple. And so that will be brought to an end by God. But when it's brought to an end, it will be for the purpose of drawing those who don't love Christ and truth into condemnation and ultimately refining and proving those who do. And I think in that interim period, there will be a whole lot of mystery. And as St. Pope Gregory the Great says, those who persevere to the end, a great deal of their merit will be because they will have to rely on what they know to be true and not what they're seeing. So... I take great comfort in that, frankly. Pope Gregory the Great is in the 500s. He was seeing it that clearly. And whether we're in that time now or not, I frankly think we are. I could be wrong. Um, I, I'm not dogmatic about these things. But the, there's a great deal of understanding in the fathers about this dynamic. And so I'm like, okay, there's a lot more in the Catholic tradition and Catholic history to, to explain this enough to where I can be comfortable you know, suffering without knowing. So just a quick note before we return, if you would like to stay up to date on LifeSite's coverage of the latest life, family, and culture news, subscribe to one of our many newsletters by going to lifesitenews.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to help us bring our truth-telling coverage to millions around the world, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation at give.lifesitenews.com. And now back to the video. We already experienced a shutdown of the mass for the first time in world history with COVID and the whole emergency, whatever, whatever, came the stoppage of the mass really worldwide. We, we watched the mass go dark worldwide. For the, and I was, because I too. That was my first Easter. John Henry, that was my first Easter as a cat. <laughs> yeah, it was very surreal. That's like a bit of a dry run for what we're expecting to come one day horrific i mean do you see that as some relation to where we are today because it's too weird that that happened for an extended period of time and that we know this is coming again so the possibility of doing that isn't remote anymore because someone might have said if someone said 10 years ago we're gonna shut the mask down no all the countries in the world no no no, get them to do it of their own accord just we'll do it because you know they will and, you know, nobody's going to rebel. Priests aren't going to rebel. Nope. G- generally, by and large, 
the whole liberal, everybody. You'll see. Every bishop, everybody. And someone 10 years ago would have laughed in your face. I think it's undeniably a possibility. I mean, how could anybody deny that possibility? It does seem that many forces in this world are particularly focused on 2030. I find that interesting. I have a theory, if if any of this is all true. I think it's potentially related to being the 2000th anniversary of either our Lord's crucifixion or the beginning of his public ministry, one or the other. So I don't know. Again, I... I'm constantly torn between how much how much do we and you're not doing this all. It's one of the reasons I always watch you because you just have such a healthy perspective on these things. But you 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 both don't deny what's right in front of us, but we all, always have to maintain the primacy of you know faith, hope, and love for for God and for neighbor. Um, and Monsignor Dillon does that in this book very clearly. He, he says the 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 key way that Catholics conquer is love and sacrifice. You know. And so I think we very much need to keep that in mind. I think it's very possibly a dry run, as you say. And 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 it was very I remember Eric Salmon's releasing that map that he did, I think in March. You probably remember where, you know, as as the states, as the various dioceses went black, so to speak, he would fill it in and and within days as the whole country was black. I mean, we do know from scripture that the only person who does that firmly and finally is Antichrist. And and frankly, this is where there's more typology that's very interesting. In the books of Maccabees, you know, Daniel prophesies an abomination of desolation. Uh, Jesus talks about it in his Olivet Discourse. You know, it's again, it's one of those topics that is somewhat mysterious. People don't quite know what it is. But in the books of Maccabees, there's a broad agreement that at least a pre-fulfillment of that prophecy was in the books of Maccabees. And fulfilled in a type of the Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the Greek king. And it's very interesting, Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled over Judea at that time, he was one of the successor kingdoms from Alexander the Great. You have the Alexander the Great Empire, and it divides into four, as Daniel prophesies. And so Antiochus Epiphanes, he writes a letter to all of his kingdom, and he basically says, I want you all to kind of drop your national identities and become one culture, become one society. It's very he wanted to Hellenize them. He wanted them to all be Greek, right? And then, of course, it's also very interesting. There is a large contingent of Jews among the Jews who wanted to help him do it, okay? And then we also know that a pre-fulfillment of this abomination of desolation was when Antiochus Epiphanes was escorted into the Holy of Holies. And the scripture itself is a little unclear on what happened, but but something happened. Either a pagan idol was was erected in the Holy of Holies, or, you know, Antiochus, being a Gentile, went in a place he was strictly forbidden to go. So he kind of contaminated the temple in the Jewish view at the time. And and immediately after that happens, pagan altars, the, the scripture says, start popping up all over Israel. And then what's also, what's also interesting is he was escorted into the Holy of Holies by somebody who was presumably the high priest, Menelaus, but the scripture makes clear he wasn't a valid high priest. Menelaus had stolen it from his brother, Jason, and Jason had stolen it from the valid high priest, Onias, through simony. simony. He, and, and, and the books of Maccabees quite literally say about Jason, he was no high priest. And Onias was, you know, was being kept somewhere, and then right after uh, Antiochus goes into the temple, Onias is murdered. So, in other words, a false high priest 
escorted a type of the Antichrist into the temple. We're in a time period where I don't think typology like that can be ignored. I'm not presuming to say how it should be interpreted, but it's there. It's there. And, and maybe it means nothing, but maybe it means something significant. But again, through studying the patristic foundation, through studying what the church has always said, through studying the scriptures, I think private revelation and whatnot can be helpful, but I think our foundation has to be the scriptures and the fathers. I have found a whole lot in there that provide some data points that I think are, they're revealing enough. I'll just put it that way for me to be willing to suffer through it with a, a sense of hopeful resignation. Beautiful. Joshua Charles. Wow. What a fascinating tour. Where can we get the war of the Antichrist with the church and Christian civilization? On Tan's website, Amazon. And this really was a labor of love. Like I said, it's, it's the first time it's been fully republished in about 140 years. There have been some partial republishings in the past, but and then I wrote a pretty extensive introduction kind of explaining these things, citing a ton of quotes from Pope Leo, some quotes from some Masonic sources, kind of laying out this fundamental difference between occultism and the faith we were earlier talking about, and, and then a lot of explanatory footnotes throughout the book. You know, there's all sorts of figures that Monsignor Dillon mentions that most people today probably aren't familiar with, so I'll provide a little mini biography of them so they have a sense of what it is, but but they'll see that this occult agenda is actually very political. It was very, very political. So you can get it on TAN, Amazon, uh, and then my Twitter is just at Joshua T. Charles, and then my website's just joshuatcharles.com. Joshua, thank you so very much. God bless you. And God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.